Well, here at Batting 1000, we are nearing the end of season one. We've had incredible guests ranging from the CEO of a major industry publication to the host of a nationally syndicated radio show to sought after economists and more. If you missed some of the season, don't worry. We'll be sharing highlights from these conversations and others during our upcoming season one replay, where we'll listen to and dissect our favorite moments from all of season one before we enjoy a brief off season ahead of season two. Speaking of which, we need your help to build our lineup. If you or someone you know should be Dale's next guest on Petting 1000, let us know at dalevermillion.com forward slash listen or by emailing our team at listen at dalevermillion.com. The, the nested equity uh, portion of U.S. homeowners balance sheet has never looked better. Um, and you people have to realize 40% of all homes in America don't have a mortgage. So you're talking about, you know, and we actually, uh, debt expansion adjusting to inflation is actually still negative from the housing bubble peak. So it, it wasn't like we had a a, a massive credit boom from, let's say, uh, uh, I, I use these mortgage banking uh, purchase application charts to kind of show that the market that we had from 2002 to 2005 is not here. So we have a lot of American homeowners who have a lot of nested equity, but the key term is fixed low debt costs versus rising wages. Uh, mortgage payment as a percentage of disposable incomes, all time lows. Uh, household debt payments, just because your mortgage uh, debt is your biggest thing uh, on your balance sheet versus the disposable income all-time low. So the consumer is in really good shape. We see it in FICO scores, cash flows, and every single data line. Uh, the American homeowner has never looked better on paper. You're listening to Batting 1000 with Dale Vermillion, where heavy hitters from mortgage, real estate, and business share their secrets for lasting success. With your host, award-winning sales strategist and industry icon, Dale Vermillion. Hello, Batting 1000 audience. Dale Vermillion back with you and so glad to be with you. And I am honored today to have a very distinguished guest. Uh, I've got Logan Motoshanu with me, who you probably know him as the housing data analyst, financial writer, and the blogger covering the U.S. economy uh, in the housing market. He has been frequently quoted in Bankrate, frequently quoted in uh, Bloomberg Financial. He's the lead analyst for Housing Wire. So if you saw the Clayton Collins interview that we did a couple months back, um, him and Clayton worked together um, very closely. He's been a speaker all over the country and uh, is a recurring guest on Bloomberg Financial. So you may have seen him on uh, TV shows out there. Uh, and he is known in social media as the chart guy. By everybody else, he's known as the housing guru. And that's, <laughs> that's where I'm going with today, Logan. Logan, welcome. I'm so honored to have you today. It is great to be here. Thank you. Well, we got a lot to talk about, but before we get into the marketplace, which I know everybody's chomping at the bit to know where rates are going, where the housing market's going, where inventory's going, all of that stuff, I want to start with your background, and I want you to help our audience know a little bit more about you. I love this detail that your family started in the mortgage business in the 1950s, that your dad uh, started in mortgage in 1979, just a few years before I did. I started in 83, so we're pretty close, um, which I, 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 does that mean I could be your dad? I'm not sure about that. Yeah, it's pretty much it could be my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's fun to know. And you actually spent 20 years in the business yourself, both as a processor and loan originator, which is really going to be really uh, make this an interesting conversation. T tell the audience a little bit more about you and your background and just some of the things that you've gleaned over your years and that you think are critical for a loan originator or a, a manager today to know um, about your background. Well, I started to uh, get into finance in 1996 by trading stocks in our family. We've had our own mortgage company here uh, in Southern California since 1987. 
And also in 1996, I started working uh, in the mortgage industry. I eventually got my LO license in 2003 and been a loan officer up until uh, June of 2020 when I retired. Um, by 2010, you know, one thing led to another. I, I started writing about uh, uh, finance, uh, real estate, created my own blog, and now it's turned to this uh, uh, 11 years later. Uh, so I'm pretty much just a data geek nerd. That's what people know me <laughs> as. And I literally just do charts 24-7. And uh, having a financial lending background, actually, I thought was an advantage for me uh, into the macroeconomic work just because uh, the American economy is so based on credit. And, you know, after the housing bubble crash, you know, there was a when you have internally knows of how the mortgage industry works and how debt structure works. Uh, uh, it really helped me kind of explain how, you know, the loan profiles in America post-2010 yep. have looked better than ever. Uh, uh, it's a big framework of my uh, discussion and talking points over the years. So it is it has actually benefited me on the macroeconomic side, having a financial lending background. And yes, our, our family in general has been in banking since the late 1950s. So this is kind of all we do. That's really cool. You know, I, I've spoken at many conferences with guys like Doug Duncan and my friend and Tony, so I know those guys. And it's interesting how unique your background is, having been in the mortgage originations and done that and familiar with it your whole life, which really makes a different perspective. So let me start with this question. Um, how did you get to Housing Wire? How, how did you move out of that into Housing Wire and get where you're at today? Well, in 2019, you know, I, you know, with my financial blog and the work I've done there, I've uh, cumul accumulated a, a nice big following just on macroeconomic discussions and and specifically for housing. And Clayton uh, asked me, you know, do you want to write for housing? And at first I wasn't going to do it because I, yeah. I wasn't sure how much I wanted to uh, continue this. But I knew so many loan officers around the country and they were like, yeah, you should do Housing Wire. We'd love your take on it. So really it was because of Kind of the relationships I've had with LOs that I thought, you know what, this will be good in the sense that this audience will be bigger and I could write maybe in a way that they could understand and it'll be beneficial uh, for them. Because I'm really a macroeconomic cycle person first, housing the secondary work, but it all kind of moves together with the bond market and mortgage rates and everything. So I thought it'll be useful. Then COVID happened, you know, so uh, and for Housing Wire, you know, I think what, what a lot of people know me for is writing a what I call the America's Back Recovery Model on Housing Wire on April 7th. And my job is to basically show people how progressions of economic cycle works. And I really believe that we were going to recover in 2020. So I'm just a nerd that is trying to show you the pathway on where I think the economy is going using data sets and try to get people to ignore the noise out there because there's a lot of noise. Uh, in in the financial discussions through social media sites. So, uh, and two things I've always said, uh, e economics, if it's done right, should be very boring. And you always want to be the detective, not the troll. Yep. So let's let's begin. And by the way, uh, you, I, I wouldn't be calling yourself a nerd. You're very articulate. I've seen you many, many times. So uh, I think we can dispel that right away and <laughs> just get to the fact. Well, nerds can be articulate, you know. So <laughs> we, we, I, I try, to, try to be as... Uh, 
as talkative as I can. Yeah, I'm going to use the term genius in that. How about if that we use that one? That, that, that'll right, work a little bit better. <laughs> so let, let's let's go right to the white elephant um, in the room that everybody is concerned about today, and that's where interest rates are going. You know, interesting to know that you have a little different perspective. Now, let me just share a couple of things, and I want to hear you kind of speak to those. The NBA, as you know, forecasted this year about a 6% increase in the purchase market in 2022 over 2021 with a record year of $1.74 trillion as of the last forecast that they did in production. They're also projecting a 63% approximate decrease in refinances, and a lot of that uh, stems off of the rate increases that we're seeing with a projection from the NBA that it's going to be around 4% by the end of the year, projection from Fannie and Freddie about 3.4%. I would love to hear your perspective on where you think this is at. And I know a lot of that's driven by inflationary uh, concerns versus, uh, you know, the Fed or Treasury. But I know you very much follow Treasury. And I want to hear just your perspective and, and kind of your thinking behind that. So I'm a bond market guy. I'm a 10-year yield guy. I'm not a mortgage-backed security person or anything in, in that regards. I actually don't believe in targeting mortgage rate levels. I believe just following the 10-year uh, uh, year channels. So uh, just to give you a good example, I started incorporating this work in 2015 and in the previous expansion, all my prediction articles said the 10-year yield is going to be in a range between 1.6 to 3%. So yep. when the recession happens, it'll go lower. Um, if you look at the long-term downtrend since 1981, uh, it's still intact. If you look at the long-term downtrend in rates and bond yields, really, since you know 900 years ago, it's been a downtrend, right? So the trend is your friend. So re regarding with COVID, when when that happened, I thought you know the 10-year yield could get negative to 62 basis points. So that's where we're heading there. The recovery was going to happen in 2020. So the ranges that I use is 0.62% on a 10-year yield to 1.94%. So basically, 2.375 to 2.5% is the low end. The upper end is about 3.375 to 3.625. The 1.94% level on the 10-year yield has been my main talking point since 2019. Uh, even in my 2020 forecast, I talked about, listen, until we break on over 1.94% in the 10-year yield, don't talk about 4% mortgage rates or anything in that regard. Um, I know everybody talks about inflation and growth. I don't believe that's the case. And I'm going to explain why. If okay. you look at economic data currently, we've had the hottest economic growth in decades. We've had the hottest inflationary data in decades. If we were just basing off of that, mortgage rates would be 65 to 7.5% today, right now. The 10-year yield would be over 5%, actually, over 5 and a quarter. That's not happening. We are still under 2% on the 10-year yield yep. uh, because it respects the downtrend in the bond yield. So I basically work off of that. What's different this year than, I'd say, last year, I can make a premise on why the how mortgage rates get over 4%. It has nothing to actually do with inflation or growth. European bond yields and Japan 10-year yields, those things need to rise, right? Because our 10-year yield can't really get too much higher than theirs. And that's currently what's happening. It's not enough yet to get the 10-year yield over 1.94%, but that was the whole premise. Because okay. if we're using inflation and, and growth, the 10-year yield currently is at levels to where in the previous expansion, people will be talking about a recession because it's under 2%. So it's not that. To me, it's more technical bond work than anything else. So you can get above 4% mortgage rates, but it needs Germany 
and the 10-year-old uh, in Japan all to rise, which they have, but it's just not enough yet. And that's why I, I create ranges in the 10-year-old to go with mortgage rates. And now the Federal Reserve is going to try to cool the economy with rate hikes. The rate of growth of the economy peaked last year. Uh, we're not a super fast growing economy anyway. Some of these things will moderate in terms of economic data and the rate of growth. So the question is, does that bring bond yields, you know, uh, let's say back to 120 and we're back to 3% or 2.75%. That to me is, is, is how I'm looking at this currently, but we do have a premise to get above uh, 4% mortgage rates, but it needs the 10 year yield in Germany and Japan to rise up and all global yields to rise together to get there. So, so here's the here's the key question. What are you projecting or what do you believe rates are going to get to? Because I, I know in, in the conversation you had with my son, Jake, kind of pre-interview on this, you talked about the possibility of they could be under 3% by the end of the year. Tell me where you're at. Yes. So sticking with the range, if growth slows down, let's say you get more of a stock market correction, the data starts to moderate, uh, bond yields could come down off of it. Uh, the question for me is that, do we go under 1% of the 10-year yield again? Uh, do, uh, do rates get back to 25 to 2.75%? Within that channel, uh, which is still intact, actually, even today, even today, the 10-year yield is at 1.84%. Um, that should stick. But the question is, do we have a little bit of rates above 4% and then come back down? Because if you just follow the downtrend, we still have some upside on the 10-year yield to about 2.70% for that long-term downtrend since 1981. So I think rates just move in a range, and, and that's really been a lot of my work over the years. I think the one time in the previous expansion where I was really tested was in 2018. 10-year uh, yield was at three, three and a quarter percent. Everybody had five, even so some people talk about 6% mortgage rates. I was very adamant back then, even at an economics conference, saying, no, the 10-year yield is going to go down in 2019. Mortgage rates are going to go back down. It just follows a long-term downtrend. So that's how I operate. I don't I don't really operate on a lot of different things that maybe other economists do. So I just basically go where I think the 10-year yield is going. And I think one misconception that has happened in the last 10 years uh, is that people are told that once the Fed stops its uh, QE process, bond yields would skyrocket and rates have, uh, have gone up higher. Uh, this has actually never occurred uh, in the previous expansion. When QE1 ended, bond yields went down, so did rates. When QE2 ended, bond yields went down, so did rates. When the taper was uh, closing off in 2014, bond yields went down and, and so did rates. When QE3 ended, that was supposed to be the end of the world, bond yields went down and so did rates. So to me, it's inflation expectations, where the, where the ranges are of the bond market, that to me is more important. And I think showing my historical work on this, it has been more correct than maybe other assumptions on where rates should be. So we'll see if the economy slows down fast enough to drive yields uh, much lower, but we stick in that range. But one thing, I mean, for me, it seems like I'm rooting for higher rates just because uh, <laughs> the, 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 there, there are issues with the housing market that, you know, that are, we'll, we'll discuss it later. The only thing that could cool housing down is a 10-year yield above 1.94%. I even wrote this in the summer of 2020. I said, listen, uh, everyone should worry about home prices accelerating, not crashing, so much that for Housing Wire, I coined the phrase forbearance crash bros. 
in, in the summer of 2020, just because the grifting of housing is done by very untalented American citizens who have basically spent their adult life telling people when housing is going to crash. So coined the ter term forbearance crash bros There's a bunch of people on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. It was going to be a disaster for them. And now we can see what's happening. Inventory in 2022 are at fresh all-time lows. The only way you could create more days on market is rates above uh, 4%. We, this happened in the previous expansion two times, but again, it's really hard to get the 10-year yield above 1.94% since uh, 2019. Got it. Well, and, and uh, you know, as, as I remind my audience all the time and everybody that I've trained over the years, you know, at the end of the day, your dad went through the same market I did when rates were 21, then down to 17, then down to 15, down to 12, and people bought homes like crazy. It was one of the biggest booms we ever saw in U.S. history. So Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, that perspective, because when, when, when people say demand's going to crash, when we had 5% no. mortgage rates in 2018, we had near 6 million total home sales. So um, I, I think people, I think uh, the perspective, do higher rates crash? Well, you know, if rates went to eight or nine or 10%, something, but look at look at the US housing market post 1996. Post 1996, because the civilian labor force is up and mortgage rates went below 8%. It's really rare in America to have under 4 million home sales uh, in any month. It authentically really only happened uh, toward the uh, end of 2008. And there was a lot of credit uh, tightening in, in that process into a weaker demographic match. So millions and millions and millions of people buy homes each year. Uh, that's perfectly normal. Where, where rates were at uh, 5% or rates are at 2.5%, the marginal home buyer does get hit when rates rise. But uh, it, it's really hard to have a kind of a demand crash when you have the best housing demographics ever recorded in history. And that's the unique period of my work for the last decade is talking about years 2020 to 2024 being a once in a lifetime event. And uh, I was really adamant on pushing that, especially early in COVID, that no, housing isn't going to crash again. Uh, people buy homes every year. It's, it's a very normal thing. Well, and you know, for anybody to even think there is a possible demand crash is pretty interesting to me when you consider that last year CoreLogic told us that property values went up 18% in the U.S. on a national average. Rents last year also went up 18% last year. So why would you ever want to rent if you can get into home ownership, even at a 4%, 4.25%, 4.5% rate? It doesn't really matter. And what I've seen in my almost 40-year career is as rates rise like they do now, you see actually a flurry of activity into the purchase side of the market because it's kind of like when the stock market shifts. You know, People kind of chase the market. It's what they do. They want to get in before the rates get too high. They want to make sure they take advantage of the marketplace. And on the refi side, you know, that's going to be the impact on the rate and term. But if you're working on cash out debt elimination, which with the liquidity needs that consumers have today in this marketplace with inflation, there's plenty of opportunities to do refis too. We'll, we'll see a, obviously a decline, but I don't think to the levels that's being predicted. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, as rates have moved up, you actually have a, you've created higher rate and term supply for future when, when rates drop. So it, it is something I talked about in 2017 and 2018, as rates had gone up, moved up toward 5%, I said, okay, so we've actually created a nice little mini wave of, of rate and term refinances. <laughs> so one of the things I talked about in 2018, I said, hey, listen, I know the Wall Street Journal had 50 economists, everybody said rates are going to well above 5%. Rates are going to go down next year. So get your rate and term refinance people ready because the whole purchase money had been at higher rates. Even right now, even let's say three and a half to 3.75, if you just get a downward shift in the 10 year yield, 
you've got another uh, rate of term refinance group right there just from the re recent purchases. So it ebbs and flows. It just, it's historically, it just falls a downtrend. So rates can move up and down within a cycle. And then when the next recession happens, they go down lower again. The question is, does the 10-year yield ever go negative here in the U.S. Uh, like it does in Germany and Japan? In time, it should be that case. But uh, the trend is your friend. That's what I always say. So uh, uh, don't that. worry about inflation or rates, you know, uh, in the late 70s or 1980s. That's uh, that's a whole different kind of a, a marketplace in terms of the 10-year yield getting back up there. Not going to happen. So a lot of that crazy fear that's out there really should be optimism. As I've been uh, telling everybody, this is a very opportunistic market if you look at it from the right vantage point. And I love the fact that, you know, we're talking about we're building future markets uh, for our consumers and for ourselves, and we should celebrate that. And there's still plenty of business. I mean, E even on the refi side, for those people who are in very low rates today, as, I, as I've shared a million times when I've trained, you know, you look at consumer debt and you look at the equity that has been created over the last decade in the United States and the amount of equity that people have today. And if you just take $10,000 in consumer debt, which averages about a $250 monthly payment, and you embed that into a 25-year, not a 30-year, 25-year term 3.5% rate mortgage, it's only a $50 payment that you're dealing with. So you're literally creating a $200 savings, with a, which is applied back, does two things. It cuts your term by over 10 years on your mortgage, and it really eliminates that consumer debt overnight. So there's so much opportunity in the market, whether rates go up or not, if you're viewing the market from the right vantage point. I think that's the key to everything. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, the, the nested equity uh, portion of U.S. homeowners balance sheet has never looked better. Yeah. Um, and you people have to realize 40% of all homes in America don't have a mortgage. So you're talking about, you know, and we actually, uh, debt expansion adjusting to inflation is actually still negative from the housing bubble peak. So it, wow. it wasn't like we had a, a, a massive credit boom from, let's say, uh, uh, I, I use these mortgage banking uh, purchase application charts to kind of show that the market that we had from 2002 to 2005 is not here. So we have a lot of American homeowners who have a lot of nested equity, but the key term is fixed low debt costs versus rising wages. Uh, mortgage payment as a percentage of disposable incomes, all-time lows. Uh, household debt payments, just because your mortgage uh, debt is your biggest thing uh, on your balance sheet, yep. versus disposable income, all-time low. So the consumer is in really good shape. We see it in FICO scores, cash flows, and every single data line. Uh, the American homeowner has never looked better on paper. Now, having said that, and, and, and that is really great news to share with the audience, but let's talk about the emotional side of consumers today, because that's the, that's the analytical side, that's the data side, and those are all true numbers. But emotionally, when you've got a combination of the pandemic, you've got inflation, you've got almost $4 gas pump prices, um, you've got changing workforces out there, people working from home, you're seeing you know, some labor statistics that aren't so great. Would it be? Would you agree? Because I really believe this: that even though consumers in America are in really great shape, there is this underlying current of fear and concern that they have. So they're going to want to make sure they're improving their finances in 2022 and 2023 in any way they can, just to create a little bit more security, a little bit more savings, a little more stability. Would you agree with that statement? Here's the thing: I would categorize that group as renters, not homeowners. Okay. Uh, when you look at American homeowners. Uh, they have it really good. Uh, and uh, they, they typically are mostly always employed. Uh, uh, the pandemic, what happened with the pandemic is a lot of the initial job losses 
were tied to renter financial profiles. In fact, one of the reasons why I said that forbearance was going to collapse is that by October of 2020, people that who made $60,000 or more of the average income for homeowners, $100,000, mostly got their jobs back. Uh, and and yep. then any of them who got them refinanced to sub 3% mortgage rates. So they're doing good. I think the, the, the issue with renters and lower income people is that inflation tends to bite the lower end uh, uh, much harder, uh, yep. because especially if you live in high cost areas, uh, you don't have, let's say, the income of a homeowner so who has a fixed low debt cost. So I would say renters have that stress. Uh, just because they they don't have the incomes that homeowners have. So yeah, I've always liked to separate those two because uh, the notion that people were going to leave their homes because of forbearance or anything, it, it just wasn't was a plausible premise. Yep. So that side, yes, in, in that regards. In terms of the labor market, it's, it's a very unique time. Uh, before the jobs data really started to pick up, I talked about jolts, 10 million job openings. Um, aging and death are very potent economic forces. And in time, uh, we have to replace our workforce. So I thought job openings over 10 million would be uh, something that would occur, uh, and it happened uh, very quickly. So the labor market, actually, people have the ability to quit and get higher pay. And this is the first time where the lower end uh, wage group actually has a little bit of uh, bargaining power because they can get more money from different places. So there is some stress on the uh, business side to retain uh, labor and to recruit labor as well. Because when you have inflationary cost pressures, if you can't pass that cost on to the consumer, then uh, uh, your, your margins get eaten by how much your pay rate. So it's, it's a very unique situation because the, the history of global pandemics, they create shortages for one or two years. Yeah. Uh, US recovery was just V-shaped recovery and then some. So that recovery is creating some uh, Durable good purchasing that's way beyond trend out there. So it's a very it's a very historical, unique period in time in history. And I'm so glad I was at Housing Wire to document the whole event and to get it because a uh, hundred years from now they'll go back and they'll say, well, who was who wasn't saying the world was going to end, you know, back then and 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 show people a pathway again to get there. Well, and and everything you just said there goes back to proof again of the American dream. And hey. We're so grateful to live in this country. What a great country we live in because we have really stood the test of time, even on international scales, that is pretty amazing. I, I, I always tweet out this one picture of me at a conference with a background, and, and the background uh, screen said, all American bears have failed since 1790. It's the number <laughs> one thing I post all the time on social media. People who know me actually know that. I said, that's going to be on my tombstone when I grave. This is going to be that city. All American bears have failed since 1790. Oh, it cracks me up. So let me ask you a question. Let's talk about inventory for a minute because I know that's a big concern. And, you know, it, it's interesting to me because I hear a lot of loan originators talk about, oh, inventory. I'm like, well, hold on. Wait a minute now. Let's let's just look at this from the right vantage point. We are having record purchase production. So, yes, inventory is low comparative to demand and, and comparative to the marketplace we live in. But there's still plenty of home purchases happening out there and home sales happening over the course of the year. But I'm really curious to hear where you see inventory going, uh, both on new housing starts as well as, you know, one of the things that I believe is going to start to happen, as you talked about death being a major factor, we've got, you know, the baby boomer generation and we've got that greatest generation has really come to a point now where we're going to see more and more and more of that. A lot of them are second homeowners. Those 
second homes will become available in the marketplace potentially in that process. And now that people are working from home and living in vacation spots, those homes become primary residences in a lot of cases, which I think is going to create a little bit of that increase in the inventory. But I'd love to hear your perspective across the board on what you're seeing. So this, this inventory uh, situation actually for me goes back all the way to 2014. And this is something that I like to show people on the charts. Uh, total inventory in the United States of America has been falling since 2014. Mm -hmm. There's also one other data line that's been rising since 2014. It's the mortgage purchase application data. Uh, so as demand rises, inventory falls. Of course. Don't make it any more complicated. A lot of people <laughs> are, you know, try to take it to other places. So I think the confusion has been in the previous expansion, which I've always disagreed with my fellow economist friends. They've always said whenever there was a sales miss, they said, there's no inventory. There's no homes to buy. That's the only reason sales. No, there's plenty of homes to buy. Look, we've just had the best back-to-back uh, -back, uh, uh, purchase years. Uh, since the uh, housing bubble peak, when total inventory is at all-time lows, we just had a, a like a five-month end-of-the-year push because mortgage demand picked up and sales grew with inventory. So there are homes to buy. Why? Because a natural seller becomes a buyer. Yep. So there are there the purchase market is there. I never was a fan of that premise in the previous expansion that there's no homes to buy. There are homes to buy. The problem with inventory now is that it's gotten to a level to where. Uh, home prices can accelerate beyond a trend. This has always actually been my concern in years 2020, so 2024. So my housing work is, has always been separated between 2008 to 2019 and 2020 to 2024. We have the best housing demographic patch ever recorded in history. Ages 28 to 34 are the biggest in the U.S. So you add them, move up buyers, move down buyers, cash buyers, investors, demand is stable and it's growing from the previous expansion. That's driven inventory lower. It's gotten to the point where everyone's fighting for a few homes, uh, so sales can still necessarily be high, but it creates kind of a bidding war, a frenzy, not because we have a credit boom, like the data from 2002 right. to 2005 doesn't look anything like. So it's hard to get days on market to grow when rates are below 4%. When rates get above 4%, the days on market typically can get to between 27 to 35 days, which is normal. But we're at the teenager level stage. The teenager level stage is like, oh, that, that's what my biggest fear was, was we just don't have that many homes on the market yeah. to create balance. And until that happens, I always say this is the most unhealthiest housing market, not because of a credit boom or anything like that. It's just because the total raw inventories have dropped below 1.52 million. And when that happens, you can get this kind of price action. And in, regarding the boomers and second homes or that is a story that's still many years away yep. uh, in terms of death. I, 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 and I do uh, talk about that, that eventually in time, the boomers will pass on and there's all these homes, but it's not the story now. The right. silver tsunami was a marketing gimmick, very clever one. It was supposed to happen in 2015. All the baby boomers sell their houses to millennials who can't buy. Home prices fall 70%. Housing's going to crash. So does America. Complete disaster, right? The exact opposite happened. We had the longest economic and job expansion in history. Then COVID came, it was the shortest recession ever and housing broke out. I mean, you couldn't get a group of people more wrong than that. But uh, <clears throat> the days on market are just simply too low. I think that's the stress. You see these home buyer surveys are at all time lows just because people hate to compete against other people uh, for homes. That's, that's, the rate. that's the main thing I take away from those surveys. Yeah, being a baby boomer, I wasn't too happy about that 2015 silver tsunami. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the housing, it's, it's really it's really interesting. Our biggest, most untalented American people are these housing crash addicts, but they're really great professional grifters. 
I mean, I just look at him and just go, this is hilarious. If you actually look at him as a comedy, all their stuff is nonsense. And uh, they've really like tricked people in a sense that baby boomers were like all going to, for some reason, all sell at a certain period of time to a group of people that they weren't going to give a market, but they're going to discount their homes 25, 35, 40% panic selling. The new grift uh, talk in 2022 is panic selling. Like American homeowners who are positive cash flow are going to sell their homes at a 25 to 35% discount uh, just to get out at all costs. That's a stock trader getting a margin call at 1250 from an American <laughs> homeowner. So I always joke. Now, now they're saying educated, positive cash flow homeowners, uh, people who have sex in their house, their kids go to school. We're just going to wake up one day and go, honey, we're going to sell our homes, not at market, but at 25 to 35 percent off just to get out. And, oh, we don't have anywhere else to live. We'll be homeless. You know, James and, and Diane will be eating out of a trash can. No, that's not how homeownership works. That's stock trader language. So be skeptical of these uh, what I call fanatics who just literally spent their adult life trolling the U.S. housing market for 10 years. I call it the lost decade. Housing bubble boys 2.0 turned to forbearance crash bros. It's just it's just what it is. This is we live in a society where this kind of information gets a lot of clicks. So for the 2022 purchase market, uh, you're feeling bullish, bearish? Where are you at on that? My sales ranges in the in last year were um, existing home sales, about 5.84 million to 6.2 million, which was higher than what we had in uh, 2020. And for, for the most part, it roughly stayed in that range. Toward the end of the year, we actually got uh, purchase application data, mortgage demand picked up. Um, so it was, it was a little bit above that. This, uh, this year is a little bit lower, about 5.74 to 6.1 million. Uh, 6.116 million. So it's roughly the same uh, kind of range. I, I'm not a housing sales boom or credit person just because housing tenure from 1985 to 2007 was five years from 2008 to currently. It's over 10 years in some parts of the US. It's 15, 16, 17 years. I'm, myself, I've lived in my home for 17 years. Things are a little bit different in terms of turnover. So sales have limits. But I've always said years 2020 to 2024, one thing that should happen is total home sales should be 6.2 million and up. Uh, that's something that couldn't have happened from 2008 to 2019. So 2020 check, 2021 check, 2022 is already being checked. Uh, for everyone out there that wants to have an idea of where housing is going, all you really need to do is look at the mortgage purchase application data from the second yep. week of January to the first week of May. As long as the year over year data is stable, that's housing will be stable. COVID-19 has ruined so many year over year charts. So you have to do uh, COVID-19 adjustments. What happened last year is housing data uh, look negative just because we had a surge in demand in 2020. So pe people thought it was negative in terms of demand falling. It was never falling. It was very stable. So once you make some COVID-19 adjustments, you can get a sense of where uh, housing is going. Again, the, any kind of slowdown in terms of days of market needs rates above 4%. So uh, always keep an eye on that 1.94% level. Well, and, and for the audience, um, I want to make sure I point out that you said something really, really important for all these lenders and all these loan originators that are out there, and it's this. You said it's going to be about flat on sales, which means that when you consider the fact that we're predicting and expecting a drop-off in the number of originators and the number of lenders in the U.S. in 2022 because of the rising rates, and some of them just aren't going to make it. We're already seeing some layoffs. That means those who stay and do it well will actually see an increase in their numbers and can see a record year in 2022, which I've been predicting um, since, you know, middle of last year, even with the rate rises coming that we knew were going to happen. So now I'm going to ask you to shift your, your focus a little bit 
I'm going to have you put your originator hat back on for a minute because you had 20 years in the business and a bunch of those as an originator. What would you be recommending today to originators to just capitalize on this marketplace and, and you know, to, to approach it with confidence and approach it with the right mindset and any advice you would give there? Connect with your clients uh, personally. Yep. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> It's a lot. I mean, I, I remember days where we had trans boxes and faxes and, you know, we'd have to get rate sheets from, you know, from telephone calls. Things have changed. So you have no yep. excuse anymore. Yep. Productivity in the mortgage industry has skyrocketed in a sense that we have e-signings, rate quotes, apps and everything. So the advantage you have is you have to be able to want to give your time to connect with your clients and keep them in line because they're going to be bombarded by everything, right? Uh, uh, information is being sold left and right. So you have to be able to establish a relationship with your clients because trust me, there'll be 10 other people that are going to try to take them away. And if you don't want to give that effort, there's someone else that will. And uh, in, in this day and age, I think that's that's one thing I've I remember from, you know, in the previous decade, how productivity wasn't great. Things took forever uh, to, to, to work on a process loan, everything. Now you have the ability to be more proactive with your clients. And uh, once you establish a relationship, that should be a relationship that sticks uh, because the competition is out there. And in a purchase market, like always, um, people get more hungry to get that uh, deal. So uh, don't let yourself get outworked by your competitor because uh, that'll be on you, not them. Man, there were so many quotable statements in there. That was a drop the mic moment right there. And uh, <laughs> I appreciate that because look, this this is kind of my, uh, my main philosophy and it always has been in the 40 years I've been in the business. So this, this is still a relational business. This is still the largest transaction financially most people ever go through in their lifetime. And we have... We have really seen a trend. You know, I work with so many companies and so many loan officers and so many leaders across the country every single month. And I'm seeing this trend that's so concerning to me that we have taken technology that was created to increase efficiencies and productivities, make the process easier so it actually frees up the loan originator to spend more time with their customers and with their referral partners. And we've done the opposite. What we've done instead of that is say, oh, well, we'll just let that technology do our job for us. And, you know, in a 2020, 2021 market when rates got down under 2%, you could get away with that. 2022, you cannot get away with that. You've got to reconnect, rebuild those relationships, make sure you've got... I love that you brought that forefront as somebody who not only sees the market at a level that, that almost nobody in this country does, um, but also has that background as an originator. I, I just love hearing that. Um, so let me ask you this question. This is a question I ask every one of my guests. Um, and, and, and I can't wait to hear your answer on this. You know, you have, you have achieved success in a lot of areas in your life and business. Um, you, you are very well known. You, you, you've, you've got an incredible career. I'm assuming that in your career, you've had mentors who've helped you get to where you're at today. And what I'd like to know for, hear from you is, um, what are some of the stories or maybe a story that you can share with the audience on you know, maybe a specific mentor that made a major difference in your life. And then a little bit about how you feel about the importance of having mentorship, because this is something that I believe is a key attribute to success for anybody in life. Well, my mentor was actually my high school basketball coach. Um, awesome. Before I got into finance, my plan was to coach high school basketball and teach history. 
And as a player, he always emphasized three teams, teamwork, intensity, and class. And um, I actually got my first high school coaching job. I was, real, I, I was, a, I was the baby of my, of my uh, class. I actually got it at 18. Wow. Um, so I started being a coach really young. And one thing I always remember is how you show yourself, how you conduct yourself to the public uh, is how people are always going to look at you and remind you. So you always have to present yourself with class because that's how people are always going to remember you as. You always have to bring the intensity to whatever you do. Now, of course, I'm, I'm retired. I bring my intensity into looking at charts. Uh, so that never changes. That's always been, I thought, for me personally, that's always been my benefits. I wake up literally every day. I bring it because I want to win. Uh, um, and teamwork, right? You have to have a team around you, whether it's your wife, your husband, whether it's your coworkers or anything. And you have to be able to learn to play as a team because a, 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 even a prolific individual uh, can bring a team down. So those three things growing up, I've always brought it into, uh, uh, into my world of either business or now looking at economics. And it's just kind of like almost having like a, a strong safety mentality in football where you're just ready to go every single second. But you conduct yourself with class, you always be a team player, uh, and you bring that intensity every day. I love that. Um, first, I love all three of those. But bringing class, you don't ever hear anybody talk about that. And, man, that is such a great tip and so important. And, you know, I mean, look, you represent that in the way you carry yourself. Um, it, 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 is a, it is a key marquee trait of every top producer, every top performer, every leader I've ever met is they've got a classy approach to their business or they don't stay in that position very long. It's bottom line. So I love how you articulated that. Let me close with these two questions. First question, what do you think are going to be the three trends that are going to define 2022 by the end of this year that we need to know about? Um, number one, uh, trend is your friend. Demographics are here. That's never going to change. Uh, we, uh, people buy homes. That's, that's set in stone. That's not going to uh, be a factor. Uh, in terms of Inflation and economic growth, the rate of growth has peaked. Uh, things are going to cool down naturally because we had an yep. abnormal high level. That trend, if it comes down, is perfectly normal and fine. People are going to overhype that. And, and, and the third one is that you people have to realize the United States of America is the only economic superpower in the world. And the reason why is that we have a lot of young people. Uh, we have replacement workers and consumers. Japan doesn't have it. Europe doesn't have it. China doesn't have it. We have just entered a multi-decade run against a lot of other mature, wealthier economies. So that's going to be here for a long time. So kind of be mindful that the society might clickbait uh, those who think America is going to crash or anything. But all American bears, all American bears have failed since 1790. You don't want to go to your graves being part of that group. It's a very, very sad historical graveyard. So just remember that we have just started this inflection point to where we have the advantage over a lot of countries. Uh, and it's a big part of my work. And that trend, not only for this year, it's going to be here for a while. So in other words, keep making those babies out there so that we can keep America strong. And if my children are watching this, that means more grandkids for, for me and Laurel. <laughs> so yeah. I love that message a whole bunch. Uh, last question. Uh, is there any possible 
economic uh, surprise event that you think could happen in 2022 that nobody's really talking about, but you're kind of seeing trends of that. And it's something that's kind of in the back of your mind that you think we could be facing. Well, if growth slows down noticeably and supply chains actually start to get normal, um, uh, people might get shocked on some of the uh, rate of growth slowdowns and inflation in the economy while the Fed is starting to raise rates. Uh, so uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that nobody's talking about that in that in that yeah. regard. So if, if that happens, that actually looks perfectly normal to me because uh, we just had a very sharp rebound and that first rebound in economic growth usually is the peak rate of growth. So uh, if that occurs and bond yields fall again and rates go down, look at that as being normal because I could already see if that happens, people are going to say, oh no, we're going into a recession and things are, no, it looks perfectly normal because the rate of growth is just, uh, it couldn't be sustained. That doesn't get a lot of discussion because we, we talk about inflation or a hot economy, a hot labor market. Remember, a lot of this is a function of COVID. Yep. Eventually it's going to go. Uh, uh, and when things get normal, things go back to what they used to be. Uh, the world is, population growth is slowing around the world. Uh, the rate of growth of the economies are slowing around the world. Hopefully productivity picks up maybe uh, in the next year or two to alleviate some of the stress with the, the businesses. But that to me looks normal. That might be, people might be nervous about something like that happening you know, in the economic data. Got it. Very good. So, Logan, how can people reach out to you or get a hold of you? Anything you want to share with the audience? Well, Housing Wire, uh, HW Plus, they have all my work there. Yep. Uh, I no longer write for my blog. Uh, Sarah Wheeler and myself, uh, we do a podcast called The Rundown. Every Monday, I geek it out. I nerd it out. We talk about all the economic data, especially relating to the mortgage or housing market. Uh, but HW Plus has that in and. Uh, all my work is pretty much there. My name, Logan Moshavi, Twitter handle and Instagram. Uh, those are two areas where I go on social media. I write charts. I talk about charts every single day. If you want to be nerd out, I'm the guy because that's <laughs> all I do now is look at charts <laughs> and nerds all day. I don't do anything else. There's no more real estate agent asking me, where are loan docs two hours after I submitted loans? So those days are over. So I just look at data all the time. I guarantee there'll be a whole bunch of people following you off of this podcast that uh, that would love to nerd out because I, I hear it all the time as, I, as I'm working out there. Logan, it has been such a delight to have you, an absolute honor. I know you're a very busy man. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time with me and getting to know you better and just really enjoyed this and look forward to a friendship for many years. You mentioned Sarah Wheeler. She's a really good friend, um, as well as Clayton Collins. And Kristen Messerly, you probably know too, who was part of the Housing Wire staff uh, back some time ago. Maybe you've run into her or not. She was on this uh, show recently. Uh, she's now with Experience.com. So we've got a lot of common friends, and now we are friends. And, and I'm, yes. I'm feeling great about that, and I want to thank Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. Been an absolute uh, honor and great stuff. You gave us a bunch of great stuff to think about. We really appreciate it. God bless you, my friend. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Good to have you. Batting a Thousand is a production of Mortgage Champions, a company that's been transforming the people who transform companies since 1995. Have a suggested topic or guest? Contact my team on Twitter. That's at Dale Vermillion 
or tweet us using the hashtag batting 1000. That's hashtag batting 1000. 